You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT LP, Davis, California. song means it is time for the Davis Garden Show. Happy New Year. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter. And it is what? Your microphone was way up. That's not my fault. I think I got it. Okay. Um, it is the first show of 2020. January. So we are going to this year have 2020 foresight. Okay. <laughs> well, it's January 9th, 2020 is. is the date of the show. We're also going to try to remember to give the date of the show at the beginning of each show. Every show. We're going to try. You know, we make promises. Sometimes we keep them. For example, I like to promise that I'm going to post pictures and things at davisgardenshow.com. I did this week. You did? You know, yeah. What's the picture of, Well, Don? we'll get to that in a moment. I didn't go look. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, let's see the weather. If you look out the window, you notice Lois did, not say, um, did um, not say it's a bright, beautiful, foggy, sunny day here in Northern foggy, California. Foggy, overcast, um, well, gray. According to the weather service, it's mostly sunny right now, but well, um, their site is a little off someplace at the moment. Else. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's been raining. We got about a half an inch of rain in some areas, more like a quarter inch here in Davis. Showers overnight, supposed to clear up this afternoon, go up to a high of 54. Present high is not recorded on the weather station because it's it's having problems. It's a new year and they're just sort they're of, still it, getting, it's still asleep. They're still getting back there to fix things. Tonight, however, this is important, it is going to get to 34 degrees. Why? Because it's going to be overcast most of the day and then clear up. And so that won't have much solar input, which means we're going to get cold pretty rapidly. And there are two things that result when that happens. Frost. Areas of frost and areas of fog. Uh And for the last week, we've been seeing something that old timers in the Sacramento Valley will remember from when we first moved here. Lots of fog. It's been very cold by comparison with previous years. Very little sunlight. And part of that has been morning fog, sometimes sticking around well into the afternoon. We'll talk in a moment about chilling hours because that's made a big difference in the chilling hours. Tomorrow, Friday, areas of frost in the morning. Patchy fog, then mostly sunny, they say, going up to 54 degrees. Another very light rainstorm coming in Friday night with a chance of rain. These are weak little storm fronts passing over us a quarter inch here, a quarter inch there. Dropping down, however, to 41 degrees because there will be overcast. Clearing up Saturday. A high of 41? No, low of 41. Oh, okay. The high will be 
whopping 54. Okay. Sa- Saturday, chance of showers, then clearing up and getting sunny, which means Saturday night dropping into the 30s, although it doesn't look like any frost Saturday night. Sunny, Sunday, 53 degrees. Sunday night, back to the showers again. Monday, back to the showers uh, it's going to be a little bit of a pattern of that. And then I do want to mention, I went ahead and printed this out, a little warning for next week for those of you growing things that are a little tender. In the extended discussion, Monday through Thursday, it looks like there will be some more of these kind of cool wet weather, waves of precipitation, none of them amounting more to well, 15 hundredths of an inch, one of them. You know, So that's mm-hmm. what we're looking at, kind of like what we just went through. More rain up in the mountains and more snow. That's good. We're behind. Regarding temperatures, a cold air mass originating from Western Canada will bring much colder than normal temperatures next week. Mm. Late next week, I think is what they're saying. Temperatures are anticipated to be 5 to 15 degrees cooler than normal with valley highs highs in the low in the upper 40s to low 50s by midweek. That does mean if the nights are clear, we could get unusually cold. And we've only had about a half dozen frosts so far. I've got a lot of people reporting really interesting, you know, things surviving the winter that they wouldn't expect. I have a hibiscus, tropical hibiscus. Outside? Outside. Oh, I wow. just left it out there like I do to see what happens. And it was trying to bloom on Christmas Day. Mm-hmm. There's been no frost damage on it at all. The only cold damage I've had is really what I expected. You know, the coleus were killed. Mm-hmm. Um, but we haven't gotten much below about 30. Sounds like we might. So those of you worried about certain things, you know, very young citrus you've just planted, you might want to watch the weather for mid part of next week and see whether that amounts to anything. The models are not in agreement on this, but that air mass is out there. When we talk about a freeze, this is what we're talking about. A cold air moving into the area that's colder than usual. And it'll last for more than a couple hours. That's the the key. Um, So if you want to get lots and lots of information about but we had an entire show talking about frosts and freeze and how to yep. protect this and that and the other thing. And go to our archives. It's at kdrt.org. Look for the, the radio show. That, that The name of the show Actually, is down is? you're going to do better at davisgardenshow.com. Davisgardenshow.com. That's, that's oh, that's because you annotate them there. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Anyway, you can if, if this is of concern to you, you can find lots of discussion back there from previous years when we had more pro- frost problems. And we'll presumably have them occasionally again in the future. If you go to redwoodbarn.com, my business site, you'll find at least a half dozen articles I've written on frost and freeze protection over the years. Mm. So, and um, it all still is, applies. Yep. The uh, one thing I mentioned was the chilling hours. We were running fine, although at the slightly at the low end, the kind of trajectory we were having, we've talked about these before. These are, this is a, just a model that tells you whether fruit trees of particular types are going to go into and then come out of dormancy properly and be be able to bloom and set fruit correctly. You'll find these notations on fruit tree tags as you buy them right now during the bare root season. It'll say 600 hours. That's the number of hours between 32 and 45 degrees, which is what they measure. You can find web weather sites like IPM site at UC Davis that track that for you. And uh, we generally get about 800, 850 here. People are always surprised by that. Uh, that is that high. But yes, we get we get plenty here and we get plenty for almost every kind of fruit tree you can think of unless you really are trying to grow some unusual heirloom apple from New York State or something. And we were on track to get 775, 800. Well, we've really caught up 
in the last week. Uh, we were, you know, on the lower end of average. We had one 24-hour period when we had 23 chilling hours thanks to that fog. And that means 23 hours in a 24-hour period between 32 and 45 degrees. In other words, it didn't get above 45 that day. So, so, so this is, if it's if it's within that temperature, two hours at night, that counts for two hours, yes. even though it's warmer in the day. Yes. It's oh, counting okay. the hours. Counting the hours. So there will be periods in, like in November when we they start counting in um, first of October and it goes through end of February because that's the dormant cycle of trees in this area and most areas. Um, so of course they vary. You know, almonds are already breaking dormancy by mm-hmm. late February and walnuts don't do that until much later. But it's a good model. It's a good useful model with some limitations and it's been improved. And you can read more about chilling portions. Uh, if you want to learn more about it, specifically chilling units, chilling portions, that's a model that takes into account the weird fluctuations where it's a lot warmer than it should be for a brief period, which undoes chilling hours. Well, And by a lot warmer, you mean like in the 70s? 70s, yeah, which yeah. happened in one year in January. And the cherry crop was off by half in California that year because it undid the dormancy. Um, it, it's something that matters, especially if you're listening to us in Southern California or coastal areas of California, where you mostly only get 200, 300 chilling hours. My folks in San Diego would only get 50. That's why it limits what you can grow successfully. Yeah, Yeah. you go to a a garden center there, if it's well run, they're not going to sell you a Red Haven peach that needs 900 chilling hours in San Diego County because there's no place on the coast anywhere there that gets anywhere close to that. Mm -hmm. They would sell you a suitable variety for your region. And so we are on track now. In fact, we're on track to have more than average because of this nice long spell of Cold, gloomy, foggy weather, which helps to keep the chilling hours consistent. So we're on. We're we're at about well close to 500 at this point. We've still got several weeks to go. In fact, as it happens, the almonds have already gotten what they need. I mean, so there's they vary. Crops vary by how many chilling hours they need. So if I have something that needs um, 300 chilling hours, yes, and I get 500 chilling hours, Fine. does it hurt the thing that needs 300? No. It's a minimum. It's the other way around is the issue. It's a minimum, right? If you right? have a plant that has low chilling hours and uh, you're in an area that warms up and then gets cold again, warms up and gets cold again, it could come out of dormancy, try to bloom, and then be damaged by a frost that happens after that. So if you, you don't want to plant a low chill peach outside of a low chill region, generally, if you're subject to late frost. You want to get varieties that are suitable to your Uh area, and your garden center should have those. I hate to say this, but the big mass merchandisers don't care or know. They just sell, you know, Bing Cherry, Red Delicious Apple, the ones everybody's heard of, and they may be selling those in places where you don't get sufficient chilling. My father went through this repeatedly in San Diego, planting an apricot that needed 600 chilling hours because he'd bought it somewhere, they only get 50 or 100 in coastal mm-hmm. San Diego, never flower or fruit. That's what happens. They you don't, had a tree with leaves. Yeah, they, they don't flower. They Flowers don't develop properly. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is one of the things that you know, climate change um, research is going to focus on as we look at tree crops. Uh, this is why the models are getting more complex and more detailed with regard to individual crops and whether it's, it's not just the hours. That's just a model that we use. It's the, the way it goes into and out of dormancy. Mm-hmm. So the newer models which you can read about online, account for those higher temperature spikes, the, the influence of the lack of valley fog, for example, yeah. having warmer highs in January than we used to get. We may get the chilling that they need, but then it's undone, as they say, by higher temperatures. Up here, where we are, we get plenty of chilling most years. Every decade or so, we get a year where it's low, 
Mm-hmm. Farmers are concerned about certain crops, certain tree crops. Sometimes it's a problem. One year the apricot crop was off by half, again, statewide. Because when you say it's off, you mean it was reduced? Yields, yields were 50% of what they should have been. Uh-huh. Same thing with cherries sometimes. So that'll be an ongoing area of research. If you're going into the field of um, pomology and you're a young, uh, young person, Focus on chilling hours. It'll be a useful thing to do. Here's an event that's relevant to fruit trees. Okay, this says, learn how to care for fruit trees. And this is um, printed in the Enterprise. If you want to read the whole thing, go to the davisenterprise.com and uh, look in their community section. Uh, Yolo County Health and Human Services Agency is hosting a free hands-on fruit tree care class from 10 to 1130 Saturday, January 25th at the Hannah and Herbert Bauer Memorial Community Garden. That's at 137 North Cotton Street, Cottonwood Street in Woodland. It's behind the Bauer building there. Uh, This interactive class will be taught by Bonnie Berman, Master Gardener of Yolo County, with a wealth of knowledge about fruit tree pruning, common fruit tree pests, and how to control them, as well as tips on how to improve the lifespan of fruit trees. Winter is the optimal time to care for fruit trees to help them stay healthy and productive. Pre-registration is required before January 24th. And they have a phone number. I won't read that. And they say uh, go to uh, look for activities at yolocounty.org slash garden. And this should be listed there. Yolocounty.org slash garden. Yep. And this is run by the Master Gardeners who do a great Mm -hmm. job here in Yolo County. Master Gardeners are part of the cooperative... under the general umbrella of cooperative extension, and um, they host these kinds of things all over the place. I love to mention these because they're a great hands-on opportunity to learn about pruning. I don't have a place to do these kinds of things. I'm happy to hand this off <laughs> to the Master Gardener. People ask me all the time if we do seminars, where, I mean, you'd have to come out to my farm and help me prune my fruit trees. So, so are the rest of these uh, questions for us, or are they yeah, something no, the rest else? Yes, okay. first of all, first of all, seed catalog time. Oh, yeah. I have 15 seed catalogs on my desk right now. And I like to get them and look at them, not only because I do order things that I don't They're need. They're pretty pictures. I, I order things that I don't need and, and really you know, could probably provide from my own nursery. But look at this. Here's, I want you all to be aware of some of these trends in breeding. And this is Harris Seeds, which I get uh, because I have... Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S? Harris, yes, Harris Seeds. Uh, they, they sell to a lot of what we call truck farmers, small farmers, uh, people who run fruit stands, smaller operations, but people want to buy more than a packet of seed. You know, they want to buy seed by the pound. But I find what's interesting about them is they tell me where the market trends are going. Mm-hmm. And here's a whole page of miniature tomato plants for containers and hanging baskets. Oh, cool. What are there, like nine or ten varieties there? Oh, there's tiny yeah. little plants. Yes, cute little plants for cute. baskets and barrels and planters. Yeah. There's always been uh, patio and uh, the uh, husky series and a couple of other... What about that dwar- sweet 100? Is that a little that's one? That's not miniature that's at not all. Miniature. That plant is a monster. It produces oh, okay. lots and lots of... What's the, what's the little one that it's, it's got a name with 100 in it? Oh, there's sweet 100, sweet million. Those are all full-size plants. Full-size and plants, so okay. these, are, these are miniature plants with... Hair drops. Hair drops. With, Terenzo. Yeah, tumbling Tom. Notice the, the notation on Terenzo is an All-America selection, which means it's been tested widely right. in a lot of different climates. Oh, sweet and neat scarlet. And these are all most, mostly, anyway, the ones I saw there are all they're cherry F1 size. Hybr- and cherry they're F1 size. hybrids. They're hybrids, so, yeah. They're yeah. hybrids with good disease resistance, which is unusual, was unusual for cherry tomatoes for a long time. And these are miniature plants. And mm-hmm. so look for these. I always get questions every spring about what tomatoes you can grow in a barrel or a planter. 
hanging basket. I get someone, you know, we have lots of apartment dwellers in Davis, a lot of students here. Mm-hmm. Just get interested, want to grow a tomato, give it a try. And, you know, we would always kind of talk them out of it because the tomato is such a big plant. We only had a couple of varieties that were really suitable. Well, this is a trend. This is mm-hmm. So there's lots of good varieties. And I'll be trying most of these, by the good. way. I'll I'm be looking- ordering seeds of almost <laughs> all of them. So I'm looking at a picture here of something called Cherry Falls. And I have to say... There's so much fruit on there. It looks like there's more fruit than leaves. It looks like it's a, amazing. It looks like it would make a great hanging basket. Now the it key does. to growing things in containers, and this is a theme we'll be going on a little bit more today, is get Water. the biggest container you have. Yeah. Figure out how you're going to keep it watered. Find the right place for it, and so on. But this is there are plants now that are intended for this purpose, okay. and I've seen this across the board. The Burpee Seed Company now has a miniature corn, a miniature corn that you can grow in a tub. It'll get about three to four feet tall really? and produce an ear of corn, an actual normal size ear of delicious sweet corn. They say wow. it's delicious. I haven't grown that one yet. You know, yeah, you, you get know, lots to experiment with you, this you time. You know on. that as an outdoor gardener, corn is usually one of the big space consumers in the yeah. garden. They get six, eight feet tall and they take lots shade of shade everything out. Yeah, so now yeah. they've come up with one that's a miniature. The other trend I see in here for you East Coast listeners, and this is good news for all of you, is late blight resistance has been bred into a lot of new tomato varieties. We don't generally, in California, at least in the drier parts, have to worry too much about late blight fungus on our tomato plants. It happens occasionally. You'll get a branch that'll suddenly die back. You'll see this these spots on the stem. And I just tell people here, prune that out, put it out with the trash, put that part out. Sometimes you lose don't the whole plant. Don't compost it. Yeah. yeah, sometimes you lose the whole plant. Typically, it's just on a branch here and there. may have been on the plant when you got it. I've had that happen occasionally with certain growers. We see it. We just go, they go right in the dumpster when that happens. But back east, mid-Atlantic states, upper Midwest, you get late blight on a plant, you get a rainstorm, it's on all your plants. Right. And uh, so resistance to late blight had always been a real challenge for breeders. Well, now, if you're looking through these catalogs, I doubt if you'll find these your garden centers yet. Probably uh, another are, year. Yeah, these are new. And yeah. uh, so try some. You know, go to Harris Seeds. Burpee Seed especially has a lot of them. Yeah, you can mail uh, order seeds, man. It's that's, cool. That's what you do in January. I have already had three requests. It's January 9th. I've already had three requests for tomato seedlings. in in our my nursery because it was a sunny day on the weekend you're gonna have your tomato seedlings soon and i kind of looked at them and bit my tongue and said yeah three more months real real soon Mm -hmm. define soon but yes we will and uh, i said but it's great seed catalog weather look on our and we have them on the rack too you know we have tomato seeds up this is early to even start the seed your plants would be three feet tall before it would be time for planting them out it's a great time to think about it figure Mm -hmm. out what you have room for Look at some of the Do new one of those things maps. that are available. Yeah. Garden maps and make a chart. The other, thing, the other thing I notice is I, the next page here. Look at all these new kinds of cherry tomatoes. Yeah, lots this of tomatoes. This is really, really Lots of different big, colors. Yeah, yeah, colorful tomatoes. Midnight snack. These that looks good. Purple ones, yellow ones, all kinds of new colors and styles. Uh, and chocolate sprinkles. <laughs> they never had disease resistance in cherry tomatoes much before. Now there are some disease resistant oh, varieties. Good. So that's something. If you've been, you know, out here, we just plant tomatoes. I've never per- personally sprayed a tomato plant with anything. We don't get pests or diseases on them in California because mm-hmm. it's drier. Humidity mm-hmm. is so low. If you space them wide enough and, you know, get good air movement, good sunlight, you're just not going to have problems. But if you're in Oregon, you're in Long Island, you're in Mid-Atlantic, you're up Michigan. in Michigan, you're growing them in Ontario, 
you know as well, better than we do, that uh, when you plant them, you've got a number of aspects of the elements to combat and also pest problems. So mm -hmm. look for some of these new pest-resistant varieties. This one looks good. Candyland <laughs> Red. That's what I do. A protected culture. What does that mean, a protected culture? I don't know. I'll find out. Um, You'll have to look in the book, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S seeds. There's lots of seed companies, by the way. Harris seeds and burpee, I think, are two of the best. But there's plenty out there. If you're more into heirloom and, you know, non-hybrid types, there's, who are the folks over in Petaluma? The, I'll think of them in a moment. Anyway, there's lots of options out there. And then there's all those pig ones. The wild boar farms, he sent me a note. He's got some new varieties. Those are only going to be available, of course, through small local garden centers. That's who he sells to. But his seeds... Are available in two places. One is online through his company, Wild mm -hmm. Boar Seeds. Wild Boar Farms is the name of his company. You can buy the seed now. Of course, they're open pollinated and not mm -hmm. hybrid, so anybody can save the seeds and sell them. And Baker Creek is the name I was trying to think of. Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds have some of his. He also licenses people, you know, authorizes people to sell them. So you'll find them out there. We're getting now to the point where there's a half dozen or so of his varieties that are outstanding, reliable performers here. But where you're listening. There might be a different one, so try yeah. different ones. Uh, he's got some amazing varieties. Okay, all kinds of things to talk about today. Well, it's a new year. It is. It and is. We also accumulated a few weeks of questions. And uh, for those of you who are on the podcast, a uh, quick note, uh, there was a, a, a error in my coding. So four weeks of shows just showed up in your podcast folder. Oh. Thank you, Don. Thank you for catching enjoy, us up. Enjoy an afternoon of radio. And we we did the ones that were played for uh, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. Yep. Were they repeats or were they They were, they new, were carefully, carefully reconstructed repeats. Okay, so they weren't a repeat. They were a... A, a revision, a That's remodel. Right. Yes, there you go. All right. Okay, all kinds of questions there. Well, this first one has a, it, it lists a website and the URL, that's the, the thing you put in, goes on for one, two, three, four, yeah. five, six, pa six lines. That's only for my own reference. Should you dig a square hole for a tree? Okay, I'm going to make square this, hole? The sound you're about to hear is me pounding my head against the wall. Um, this is right up there with that. Are bell peppers male or female? But boy, it's making the rounds on Facebook and internet and a everywhere else. Hole. Yeah, and there's this picture of someone who's very carefully dug a square hole for trees, and there's a whole long explanation of why you should dig square holes for trees. It's how can I say this nicely? Non Ridiculous nonsense. There's no there's no scientific basis for this, so don't a worry about it. A tree is a goes stem goes down in the ground, and then the roots spread out from there. They're not spreading out square. Yeah. Let's just keep it simple. Just like with bell peppers, you know, fruit has no gender. We'll keep this simple. Trees don't care about geometry. Next. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Round hole you're is like, fine. You're likely to encounter this one somewhere pretty soon because it's been all over the place. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so, so what we wanted people to know to do for their tree, mm. you've got a tree yep. and it's a bare root tree. Inspect and, inspect and correct. Yes. Okay. Inspect so, and correct. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on about that a little bit. Take it out of the pot. Look at the roots. Uh -huh. Circling roots should be pulled out, spread out, pulled apart, cut if necessary, if they're girdling. Um, you should probably splay them out by cutting down the sides and across the bottom. If you want to see an excellent illustration online of how to plant a tree, go to Dr. Ed Gilman's website, the University of Florida. Ed Gilman, University of Florida, extension. Great pictures there for how to do it, for what is the approved peer-reviewed method for planting trees and shrubs. Mm -hmm. And it does involve pruning roots and breaking them up and inspecting them to make sure you're correcting any possible root problems. So if it comes in, in a pot of soil, you want to look 
you want to shake off enough to the soil yeah. that you can see the roots. Break it down the side, cut off the cut across the bottom. Don't hesitate to do that. You're not going to harm it, and you will make better you know, better mm-hmm. structural tree in the long run, structural root system in the long run. These are this is what's recommended as the official practices of the International Society for Arboriculture. So you can find them there. Those are often specced by landscape architects as this is how to plant the trees on the job site. It's been tested. You prune the roots. You inspect them for circling and girdling conditions. And you do spread them out when you plant them. And then you want to make sure it's up a little bit so that you don't end up with it down in a low spot. So you, that the, the where the level of the dirt was at the beginning when you got the thing, it is no lower than that after it's all settled and done and, should and be growing. Above, should be above that, if anything. It should be above bit. that. Make but, a basin, water correctly, and so on. There's a lot more to discuss about that. But... The inspect and correct is the simplest way to remember it. And mm-hmm. uh, you can find lots of good illustrations online. So. Good. Thank you, Don. Yep. Um, next one says, I planted a flat and a half of pansies in my backyard, mm. but they're dying off. I pick them up and there's no roots left. They yeah. just come right up in my hands. Yeah. What's going uh, on? Cutworms. Cutworms. Here, here in the valley, oh, for some yeah. reason, we had a late season outbreak of cutworms. And people who would dig around a little bit would actually find them in the soil. I had someone who had a problem on his broccoli, had someone else uh, who had a problem on bedding plants. And when it's this rant, you know, my, my first instinct was to talk about the watering and root rot, crown rot, things like that. But then the way she described it, it sounded like much more like the pattern of cutworms, which feed at ground level. They're hard to find because they feed early in the day or late in the day, and they're generally under the soil when, you, when you're looking for them. So poke around and you may find them. Of course, it's cold enough now, they're, they're done, but... Uh, you can prevent them, well, you can control them once they're present with the BT, which is an organic spray that's specific to caterpillars. Okay, and this person writes, um, I'm looking for a 12-12-12 or a 10-10-10 fertilizer yeah. for my orchid and my avocado. I read that was what they needed. So that's wrong, um, but I, I really hate to criticize other people for their fertilizer recommendations because it's a very confusing subject. What does 12-12-12 mean? 12% nitrogen, 12% phosphorus, 12% potassium. Um, that's called a balanced fertilizer, and that's a misnomer. We, don't, we shouldn't use that term, but you will run into that phrase, a balanced fertilizer, because all those numbers are the same. Um, plants don't use nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium in equal ratios. They use lots of nitrogen. Mostly nitrogen. Usually you don't even need to add phosphorus. In the garden, in your soil, before you ever add phosphorus, you should have a soil test done or just skip it because it's almost... I've never seen a soil test here that showed a deficiency in phosphorus. Mm-hmm. I've seen almost every soil test I've looked at, it's either very high in phosphorus or above optimal in phosphorus. So it's a problem it, it, to put too much phosphorus yes, on. It, and we didn't used to think that. So if you're listening to the shows from 2005, which you might be doing, we might have had a slightly different take on this. Back then, my feeling was it was just harmless because it wasn't necessary. You know, here's the, the, the key question about any gardening practice. And I got this from Dr. Linda Chalker Scott of The Informed Gardener. Is it necessary? Is it harmful? Okay. In general, a lot of things fall in between. If it's neither necessary nor harmful, speaking as a retailer, I have to say, well, I can have it on the shelf anyway. People mm-hmm. walk in and want it. There it is. Gypsum is a good example. You don't um, need it. You don't but need it. I don't okay. think it does what they say it does. I don't tout it. But, well, i got a bag there for you if you want it. But we have come to realize that applying too much phosphorus is actually harmful in a couple of regards. One is that it suppresses the growth of important soil mycorrhiza. And those mycorrhiza extend the functional surf area, the surface area of the root system and its ability to take up not just water but nutrients. And so in applying too much phosphorus, you can actually inhibit the plant's ability to take up 
important micronutrients. It's quite including pos- phosphorus. Including phosphorus, it turns out. Yes, yeah. more important. It may be one of the reasons we see, say, iron deficiency on roses if people are using bloom food on them over and over again, year after year after year, and they're suppressing the plant's ability to take up micronutrients like iron, which can cause a very visible deficiency. Mm-hmm. It's quite possible that that is simply because we've been suppressing them They've made phosphorus. their soil toxic. Essentially with too much phosphorus. Yeah. And it's hard to get rid of phosphorus. So we, you know, I'm not, I don't want you all to freak out about this, but it's not necessary to add it for sure. So it's definitely in, so, the, definitely in the not necessary and it could be in the harmful. And so let's just look for fertilizers so, that are more nitrogen, less phosphorus. And just for the record, potassium doesn't really make much difference one way or another. So we want a zero the, in the middle, so no, something it, high at the top and low at zero. the bottom? It's not going to be zero because it's almost impossible to get zero phosphorus. Oh, because but it's in with other stuff. It's in with other things, okay. yeah. So, but, it, but low. So let's so you take want high, low, medium. High, low, or whatever. I don't really care about potassium. I've never seen a deficiency, nor do I think a surplus is a problem. So that would be in the let's not worry about it category. So a good example of a very good fertilizer is fish emulsion. Mm-hmm. Four to five percent nitrogen, so usually they usually call it five, one one. All right, so it's got some oh. phosphorus because you can't avoid it, and it's got some potassium. That's fine. Don't worry about it. But it's mainly giving them fertilizer, so that makes an excellent fertilizer. The only drawback to fish emulsion is stinky. Is it smells like fish? Even the so-called deodorized fish emulsion smells still like smells like deodorized fish. It still smells <laughs> like fish. Uh, so it's a great orchid food, by the way. It's excellent for that. It's excellent for other things as long as you can do it on a day when you can vent. How um, long does the fishy smell stay? 24 hours. So I wouldn't do it in the middle of the winter when the plant would have to stay outside that long or you'd have to open up your windows that or long. Or you'd have to smell it in the house or that long. Or smell it, yeah. So it's oh. not a great houseplant food in that regard, but it does mm-hmm. dissipate. So, Or look for, look for other fertilizers that are in that ratio. And, of, and really, this we need to get away from the notion of a balanced fertilizer. Even, even those of you growing food plants... Uh, there's been a ton of research on this about what rate do you need to feed, say, a farm, an orchard. Uh, and, and what they do is they test the, the crops that are being taken off. And what ratio are they taking off out of the field? What are, they, what are you sending off to market with your oranges? And well, that way you know what to replace. phosphorus, potassium. So if you do that over time, at least in theory, you need to replace those things. What they found pretty consistently, at least with citrus and other tree crops, is it's about a 3-1-2 ratio in terms of crop replacement. So mm-hmm. even there, it's not balanced. It's not equal amounts. And they're um, only talking about the fruit. Right. You still have the leaves that grew, yeah, yeah. and it's a good they guide. needed more nitrogen. It's a good guide. It gives them something. So you'll notice a lot of good citrus fertilizers now are more in that ratio, 3-1-2 ratio. But the main thing is let's just not focus on balanced numbers. If you see someone saying it needs a 12, 12, 12, well, I hate to be blunt, but they're wrong. It doesn't need that. It's almost never the case that a plan needs even numbers of those macronutrients. High, low, low. High, low, high, low, care. whatever. High, high low, low, whatever. Yeah, okay. we can talk about potassium another time. It's a, it's a, <laughs> <laughs> oh, this next question. I love it. I love it. How do you miniaturize a fruit tree? Well, well, you zap it with one of those science fiction gadgets that shrinks it down. Yes, isn't that a, wasn't um, that a movie series? That'd be great but, if we could do that. Well, you do. Well, it. no, wait. But the real question is, yes. how do you keep it small enough to pick the fruit from the ground? And you can you do that to a tree you already have? Those are two separate questions. And yes, the best way to do it is from the start. When you mm-hmm. buy a tree, you can either do a vase pruning technique where you head it back at the time of planting and let it grow three branches out from the base, which are all more or less at the same point. You see this in orchards a lot. I don't like that because I think that 
if you have a heavy crop and you don't thin, you're not good about thinning, it's a pretty good chance that one of those branches will break. When it does, And then it would split, split open and the whole trunk would go. Split the whole thing. So yeah. you kind of have a, a, an unmanageable situation then. I prefer what's called, if you're wishing to Google this, modified central leader approach where I look at a tree. I'm about to plant a half dozen more fruit trees like I need them, right? Don, <laughs> this is your hobby. Things I don't have, you know, things yeah. that I've just got to try this new pluary that's come on the market. And uh, so I've made a space for it. And I'm going to plant it and I will... It, next winter or in the summer, I will choose three well-positioned branches, at least 6 to 12 inches apart, up the stem from about 2 feet above the ground to about 4 feet above the ground, and I'll head it back to one of those branches. So, so he means he cuts down the, the center, center trunk Hence, hence the down. term modified central leader. I've yeah. taken out the central leader, but I'm leaving them well-positioned enough that if I do ever have a problem with too much fruit on one branch, I'm just going to lose a branch. I'm not mm-hmm. going to have a major structural problem on the tree. I've just found that works best for me. So if you want to look it up, modified central leader. And have you got an article about that? Uh, yes. I believe at the redwoodbarn.com site you'll find articles okay. about the three different training techniques. And the, the only time you ever leave a central leader is with, say, a shade tree or a walnut where it doesn't matter how big it gets. But with fruit trees, once you've done that, and if that highest one is maybe four feet up, then in the summer, as the years go by, you head back all that strong, upright growth that gets out of reach. Summer pruning is the, the basic time you do size control pruning to miniaturize your fruit tree. And in the winter, you look at it and you just clean up any of those branches that, that need some crossing, you know, they're crossing or rubbing or whatever. So you do structural pruning in the winter, typically. In size some, control in oh, the winter, sorry. size okay. control pruning in the summer. The more you do that summer size control pruning, the less winter pruning you have to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can easily keep all the stone fruits, all the apples and pears, pretty much all of the main fruit trees you're thinking of, pomegranates. You can even do it with figs. You could do it with persimmons, I suppose. Most people don't. Uh, all under 10 feet with no mm-hmm. problem, under 8 feet if you wish to do so. So mm-hmm. that's essentially uh, making them semi-dwarf trees without worrying about the rootstock. You're controlling the size of the tree right. by how you prune right. them. And and most trees will recover just fine from cutting. You just have to be careful not to do it when it's rainy on certain trees. Apricots, and those are? Apricots and cherries. Don't there you prune go. them except in um, the summer. Would you want me to read here? I want you to read... That one. So we've got some great programming here, and we like to bring it to your attention. Davisville, one of the long-running shows here. Davisville showcases important issues, people, and events involving the wonderful and diverse community that is Davis, California. Join longtime journalist and interviewer Bill Buchanan in conversation on Monday afternoons from 5.30 p.m. to 6 p.m. here on KDRT. For replay times, visit cater.org and click the schedule tab. And you know, Davisville, the name of his show, that used to be the name of our town. We were called Long Davisville ago. and then eventually got changed to Davis. Abbreviated. So one of the great resources here, for those of you who want to try different things and maybe yeah. think about planting them in your garden. Should I grow pomelo? That's right. Have you ever eaten a pomelo? Well, this is the time to buy them at the Davis Farmer's Market, which was founded in 1976, has grown from three farmers selling produce from boxes on the ground, I hope they had a permit, to a thriving market that typically attracts 7,000 shoppers on a Saturday morning. It's a madhouse, a fun madhouse. I'm it's told, wonderful. I'm told. The Saturday market takes place year-round from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. The Wednesday market runs afternoons during fall and winter. During warm weather months, the Wednesday market transforms into Picnic in the Park, featuring live music, expanded selection of artisans and food vendors, and kids' activities. For more information, visit davisfarmersmarket.com. 
org. And then I'm going to do one more announcement, which we've never done, and that is uh, second Friday we have the uh, Davis Art About, and that's a place where you can go around town and go into various stores and galleries and things and look at some of the art that uh, people have made here in the area, and it's lots of fun, and you can go to, um, oh, where is it? Uh, Gallery. The um, anyway, go downtown and and you'll find places that have the list of. We'll get you more information later. No, no, just look it up. Okay. Art about. Real quickly, uh, someone sent me a picture. It's uh, actually on the next page there, and this is the picture that I posted at davisgardenshow dot com. Oh, how beautiful! Um, and and uh, you can read. Sort That's of, a praying sort, mantis, sort, isn't it? Sort of on the side there, his question. Are praying mantises good to release in your garden for your... Let's try again here. I found an odd life form (laughs) on a maple branch. I noticed it after I had pruned it and was cutting it down for the bin, and he wanted to know what it was. It is the egg case of a praying mantis. And it's it's a, a bunch of layered, a double row well, of layered... Well, just go to davisgardenshow.com and, and you look can at look the at the picture. picture. But yeah. I'll tell you that the one you're going to look at is different than what you would buy at a garden center if they're selling praying mantis to release in your garden. It looks like you found... Uh, what's his name? His name is on there somewhere. Uh, you found the native mantis egg case. It is from... Bah, 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 bah. I didn't write his name now, but I appreciate the picture... It is from John over in Carmichael. I greatly enjoy your show. I've been listening since I moved to Carmichael a year ago and found this as he was pruning. We, uh, mo- many garden centers sell praying mantids to release in your garden. I can talk about that in a moment. They have a bubbly kind of egg case. It's rather different, sort of puffy. And um, this one is more layered, as Lois was mm-hmm. describing, and more symmetrical, more... more. And this is the one even. I see in my garden all this the time. This is the native. I believe yeah. it's the native. I, you know, I did a little research on this. We actually have about four mantids, and people have been releasing the non-native types from the Mediterranean and from China in the U.S. for over 100 years. So, so they're probably they're well, adapted. They're well-established. Yeah. That's yeah. what most of you are going to find in your garden is a Chinese type because they're the biggest ones and they can eat the little ones. So they're well-established, And uh, but this looks like the egg case of the native type. They're beneficial in a sense. Um, it, I consider mantids like spiders to be a sign of a healthy garden. Now, why do you say mantid instead of mantis? Yeah, take your pick. Mantid is the correct way of saying it, correct word, but okay. praying mantids, mantids. Um, a singular, I believe, is a mantid. They are um, they're beneficial in that they eat pests, but what they mostly eat is things that fly by them, and that includes bees, that includes beneficial insects, that includes each other. Um, they eat all kinds of things. They're what we call a, non, uh, a general feeder rather than a specific feeder. A ladybug released in your garden will eat aphids, and nothing but aphids pretty much, and then fly away or maybe settle in if you have a good habitat for it. Mantids will eat each other after mating, each other when they're young. Um, Ladybugs, if they catch them, they mostly sit and wait and catch things that are flying by. Mostly what I see them eating when I find them in our nursery, where there's lots of them, is surfid flies, which are beneficial. So there's a beneficial eating a beneficial. That's sort of a, a wash. It's a say, double negative. You might say yeah. in terms of its outcome. And uh, they, you'll see them eating bees and wasps. All right, well, that's fine. You'll see them. I mean, there's pictures of them online. The bigger ones catching hummingbirds and things. I mean, they're aggressive and voracious. So I don't. They're cons- cool to look at, but yeah. they're not really helpful to they're, the garden. They're just again, they're a sign like a spider. I mean, spiders in your garden are fine. They're healthy. They're going to eat some things that are pests and some things that aren't, and each other largely. And so it's just a sign that you have a healthy habitat out there. No, I don't think releasing praying mantis, praying mantids, is particularly beneficial. 
they're fun to watch, fun to keep. You can even keep them as pets and sort of for a while. Um, they, they are out there. We have lots of them here. And what you found there was an egg case. So since you prune it off, what I would do is I would take that back out and put it up someplace high. Because as the babies tumble out, they start to eat each other. And it's best if they can tumble down to where they're separated from each other. The sibling rivalry amongst mantids is cannibalistic. So you That's want... not sibling rivalry, Don. <laughs> it's, it's sibling, yeah, well, whatever you want to call it. You can put them up. I usually set them up on the um, upper runner of a fence and just kind of secure them in there somewhere. So that when they do hatch, which is a temperature-related phenomenon, usually in May, they all hatch at once from the same egg case, all two, three hundred of them. They'll go tumbling down and scatter away and... Hopefully a fair number of them will survive in your garden. So we have a native one here in California. It's only about two and a half, three inches long. We have a non-native uh, one, North American native. We have a non-native Chinese one. That looks like one of the native ones is my best guess. Okay. So uh, does it matter if they're out in the rain? Nope. I mean, they're not. When they when they do things, it, I always seem to see them on the underside of the branch. Yeah, sort of. But they're used to the elements. They're, they okay. come from much colder climates than here. Okay, so we're, we have lots of pruning discussions we'll to go. We'll come back to those because I want to oh. do a little more topic and talk, discussion about pruning. Maybe okay, next week. So, so we're not doing pruning now? No, we're going to talk about bonsai. So I can take this away and give you that. <laughs> he we'll took my back. list. I had so read it. We'll I actually come back, was ready. We'll come back to this because there's a, there's a good – I want to do a whole thing on, on pruning. Okay. So my favorite Christmas present that anybody bought from my nursery this year – was a man who came in on December 24th and said his son, who was eight years old, had a bonsai tree on his Christmas list, mm. which I thought there is hope for humanity. This kid wants a bonsai tree. I don't know what else was on his list, but right there, that's a good start. <clears throat> and now, a bonsai tree is a fairly pricey thing. You know, if you buy one that's actually already made up and got some age to it, just roughly speaking of 40 50 100 $150 to find out if your 8-year-old is actually really interested in bonsai. That's a little much. And he had a lot of trouble making up his mind. Mm -hmm. So we uh, sold him a bonsai pot and a bag of bonsai soil, which he wrapped together with a promise that he would bring the son back in to after pick out Christmas his tree. to pick out his tree from the seedling starts, which nurseries have Wonderful. for that purpose. And I said, by the way, right after Christmas... Nurseries are really slow. It's a great time to come in. You know, mm -hmm. just bring them on down. We'll spend it. We'll help them plant it, all this kind of stuff. When so, you say bonsai soil. And by the way, bonsai. Bonsai. Yes. When you say bonsai soil, mm -hmm. what, what is different than normal it's, uh, We'll get soil. to that in a minute. It's, okay. in, it's developed for the fact that you're doing a very reduced root system, and it's challenging to keep them watered, but they need good drainage. So it's designed for that purpose. Okay. So on December 26th, early in the afternoon, in comes Dad with the son, who's like eight. I think he's nine years old, eight years old. And I told him I'd talk about this, so I hope he's listening. Um, and the uh, it was indeed a slow time. And uh, my staff person, he was kind of shy, but uh, she just sat right down on the path, took the pot, helped him choose plants. He picked them out himself. Dad, to your credit, stood back and didn't say stuff. You know, I, I get into these a lot where the dad is standing there trying to direct everything. So we talked to the kid, and, we, and he chose the plants, and she put it together with him. So he left with a fully planted little miniature landscape, which is not formally a bonsai. I mean, we can get into that later. But he had, he had chosen the plants himself. It was only a few more dollars than the actual original thing, but he'd chosen the tree. He'd chosen the little plants. And he walked out of there very so happy. So you 
you said plants <clears throat> plural. Yes. I always thought a bonsai was just like it was one tree and that's it. A true bonsai would be one tree uh, trained carefully, but there's all these related disciplines. I mean, bonsai is a very formal process, and you can read all about it. It's fascinating. People really get into it. The miniature landscapes are something else, um, mm. and that's not, you know, you'd never see a little figurine in, a, in an actual true bonsai, but you will see... Uh, at most one tree and a rock and maybe some moss or something. But he decided to go with the little miniature landscape route, which there are, you can go online, Wikipedia has a great description of their So what psyche. did he get? What did he get? Uh, he ended up with a little miniature heather plant and a little little accent plant. And, you know, so he made a little miniature landscape out of did it. Did you take a picture? Uh, no, but oh, he darn. has it. He has it. And um, what I wanted to get across was that if I were a beginning gardener, this wouldn't be how I would start because bonsai it's are, challenging. They're challenging, but yeah. that's fine. My my mother never, you know, when six year old came to her and I said I wanted to grow begonias from seeds, she goes, "Sure." We didn't know they were hard to grow. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> we succeeded. <laughs> she her attitude was, "All right, we'll figure it out." So he did. He figured it out on his own with some help from a staff person. And there's and there's a couple things I want to talk about with this. So I gave you some basic things there to go over, and we'll do this fairly quickly. Okay. Do you but want it, me to start at it, the top? But it applies to anything in a pot. That's okay. what's cool about this. So you can take these principles and apply them to anything in a container. So the first principle is, what four things do all plants need? How many talks have I given that started this way, Ta- ranging from five-year-olds to 90-year-olds? I say there's four things, maybe five, that all plants need, and they are? Air. Yes. You can't do much about that, but they need air. Yep. Yeah. And water. Yes. Because they would dry out. Okay. Um, light. Yes. Like sunshine or something. And then... Well, you said nutrients. Yeah. I would have said soil, and but it doesn't have to be soil I ex- because I, I I do know that they make these hydroponic sure. things with just. Yeah. But you have to have some way to get the food to the plant. Yeah, nutrients and minerals is basically what plants need. Okay. And so I, you know, I tell them uh, soil is an acceptable answer, but the soil provides nutrients. It also does. Other and ninety percent of things are in soil, not More, in yeah, water. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So those are the things they also may need protection. You know, might need protection from the weather or elements, depending on what they are. If you're growing mm-hmm. an orchid, you don't leave it outside. And they might need pest protection. That's a common issue, too. And so, if it's a house plant, they don't need those two things, probably. Unless you, well, they, you, you're giving them those things by having them inside. And yes, oh, you can, the and house you can, is their and protection. And you can certainly get, get pests on house plants. That's so, true. yes, that applies. So, okay. really, knowing how to garden is air, water, light, and nutrients. nutrients. And knowing how to garden is knowing how plants differ in that regard. And the example I almost always give is a fern versus a cactus, because those are at the extreme ends of you know, water and whether they grow in sun or shade and so forth. You know, mm-hmm. that's knowing uh, when you buy a plant, first question you're going to ask is, does this grow in the sun or the shade? Now, we take this principle and apply it to anything, including a bonsai. All right. So learning how to garden means learning how those things work. Yep. Reviewing what a bonsai tree wants. Okay. So air is fine. Water is fine. Air, yep. Yep. Um, then nutrients. That would be choose your potting soil with care. It needs to drain well but retain moisture. That's important because you're going to be constraining the root system of this plant forever. There are bonsai mm-hmm. trees that are 600 years old. And, all, wow. you know, and, they are, and they're taking them out and pruning the roots to keep the plant miniaturized but putting them back in the same pot, refreshing the soil. So that provides the nutrients. But you want something that will, although it needs to drain well for most of the species we choose, meaning water needs to run through it and not stay and sit, 
You also don't want it to dry out so fast that you have to water them all the time. Mm-hmm. Bonsai is easier to grow in coastal areas or places where it rains, like Oregon, mm-hmm. even places like Vietnam. Look, go online, look at some incredible bonsai gardens in Vietnam. Our the air rains, is so dry. Yeah, we have, we, yeah. We, so that's our a, soil dries out really fast. We water our bonsai plants every single day here yeah. in the summer. So that's okay. the first thing. Choose, your, choose a soil that's been designed for that purpose. And then learn how to manage the watering. And it's a limited root system, so it's going to need water every day. Mm. So make sure that you plan for that. It, just mm. like your cat, your dog, your parakeet, your bonsai tree needs daily attention, Uh-oh. at least in the summer. And, you know, you can't go away for a weekend and leave your dog unfed. Do you they can't have bonsai leave sitters? Your, you can't leave your cat without water. And you need to, and my parakeet needs water every day, and you certainly need to give your bonsai tree water if it's 100 degrees and it's outside. Hmm. So, yes, there's a couple of things you can do. You can set it in a tray of water for a short period of time if you have to do that. Or whoever is taking care of your cat or your dog. If you don't have a cat or a better, dog. You know, maybe better, that's a new new uh, career opportunity as a bonsai, a bonsai sitter. sitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We need yeah. an app for that. <laughs> so, okay. so that's and then the key thing. As far as nutrients go, apply fertilizer lightly periodically or choose a good potting soil so you don't have to do that. That's the easiest way because yeah. they do need nutrients because they're in a soil that's you know going to lose them. Uh, and no potting soil keeps its nutrients forever. And uh, so the fact that you're repotting it once a year will probably take care of that. But people who grow them often will feed with a oh, something like fish emulsion, but they use much weaker. They're not trying to get a lot of growth. They're trying to constrain the top growth. Right. So they'll feed it just to keep it alive, not to get vigorous growth. So okay. very commonly you buy a fertilizer that you're using at maybe one quarter strength. That's and then find way. the right exposure. That that's, depends on which plants you're putting in there, doesn't it? Yes, that's like the most if it's important. a fern, you don't want it in the sun. And there are this is the thing. You look at bonsai assortments at most garden centers, and there'll be a range of things in there. They there are, for example, in ours right now, there are three different ficus which have to be indoors. Mm-hmm. There's a Scheffelera, which is not usually thought of as a bonsai tree, but it has to be indoors. But all the others need to be outdoors. Mm. And so the thing we really had to impress on him was this is not something to have in your bedroom. This is not something to even keep in your windowsill. It's probably better if it's outside. The plant he chose would be better in natural sunlight than to try and grow it indoors. Very commonly, people are buying these trees as a gift. They're giving them to their husband for his office. They mm. give those about a two- to three-month shelf life. Office. Yeah, that's office. indoors. That's yeah. indoor. Not a good place well, for most of them. Well, maybe they could have gotten a ficus. They, they that might have If they ask, if they think of it, we will steer them towards one that's actually a house plant being grown as a bonsai. Mm-hmm. For the most part, they need to be outside. But realize, here we are, Davis, California, where on a sunny summer day, it may be 102 degrees and yep. 10% humidity. So the best place outdoors is a sheltered patio, the shade of a high tree, the north side of a building where it's bright, morning sun is fine. Uh, the same kind of place that you might have a hanging basket because it would be a little more sheltered from extreme elements. And so you'll find a place outside. My suggestion would be find an inexpensive watering can. Keep that full of water. Keep it near it. Put it where you can see it so you can dash over and give it some water before you head off to school or off to work. That way you know it'll get what it needs. And that exposure is the term we use for the sun and wind and stuff, the weather elements. Protection from the most extreme summer conditions is probably mm-hmm. the key to success mm-hmm. here. Okay. And then you said every year you cut its roots. Yep. Do you have to cut the top too? People trim the top as they go to shape them in a particular way. And there's lots of really cool illustrations of all the different disciplines of bonsai. You're shaping it to look like a windswept you know, tree on a cliff or whatever. Mm-hmm. There are names for all these different styles. You can find narrow pruners. That's next Christmas gift. Is, uh, that will do the job very nicely. Kitchen scissors work great. Just very, very light thinning and shaping to make it look, your goal is to make it look like it's a really 
old tree in a pot. And it, it make it look so that if you took a picture of it and you didn't have any size relation behind right. it, people would think it was a big tree. Right, and and had been there for a long, long, long time. The pruning the roots part, you're taking it out, you're cutting off. And anyone who's listening in our area, if you want to do this, come on in, bring it in March or October. That's usually when it's done in the spring or the fall, mild weather. We'll show you how the first time. Mm-hmm. I had a customer who inherited her father's 50, 60-year-old bonsai tree mm. when he died, and he lived in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. She lived here, and she was in a panic. Mm-hmm. She had six of these things. One of them was a fig tree. One of them was a, some other kind of fruit tree. You know, he had some amazing things, and he'd been working on them for years, and she just she knew she was going to kill him was kind of like the first mm-hmm. thing she said. said. Well, bring him in. I spent about two hours with her pruning the roots, repotting them in the pots, getting them ready for her to take home. And I said the last thing I said was, there's a bonsai club that meets in Sacramento, Shepherd Garden and Arts Center. Mm-hmm. Very active folks, really nice people there. Go to a meeting and just explain what you've got. And there's someone there will probably mentor you. Or better yet, if you really don't want to deal with this, they'd probably buy them from you mm-hmm. because those are of value to someone who knows what they're doing and they were just giving her a lot of stress. So that's another mm-hmm. thing is to know that there are resources out there. And the last principle is don't give up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. if you decide that you can't do it, don't don't give up on the plant. Don't throw the plant well, away. I, just pass it on. Or more to the point, you you know, you go away for that that week, and your friend well, forgets to water yeah. it. So what do I? What so do, if you kill it, eh, don't worry what, about it. Every gardener kills plants. Yep. The only thing that sets experts apart from amateurs is that they can usually guess what they did wrong. Yeah. All of us could tell you stories about mistakes we've made. You still got the pot. You can still go back and find for a few dollars a new plant that you could try something a little different. We could figure out why it didn't work. Maybe it was too hot for that plant. Maybe you couldn't keep it watered. Maybe you should go to a dish garden with succulents or cactus, which is a whole different category because they're really easy in containers. And maybe you want to have something in a bigger pot. Not not do a ficus bonsai. Just have to do a ficus. In this climate, um, I steer people towards junipers and pines. Um, for the bonsai. For the bonsai, because they're the classic look that they're after. You will see a lot of other things in the assortment. You'll see false cypresses and cryptomerias and things that are really feathery and, and prefer a more humid, milder climate. Mm-hmm. And once you get good at it, you may find having one, having two, having three, it's very, very habit-forming. You mm-hmm. might find that you want to plant some more. And there, you don't have to put a lot of money into this. You can find the bonsai pots at, bonsai pots at uh, uh, thrift shops. At, you know, uh, People may give them to you. And you don't have to start with an actual formal bonsai pot. You just are starting the root pruning process and the training process. I have customers who are bonsai enthusiasts who come into my nursery, go to the back, find the most overgrown shrub or tree, the ones that were probably ready to go out and be thrown away or taken out to my farm to salvage them. They buy them. They cut the top off completely at the time they buy them. They're not going to bother with that part. And they take them home, and they're ready to start whacking the roots back and stick them in a temporary pot for the first year. Well, they let them grow out a little bit, and then they're ready to start wiring the branches, which I showed him, and training the branches so they can bend them and curve them and do all those things that they do. That's all very fun. They don't, they don't come in and buy a little seedling tree. They look for the most overgrown plant they can. Why? Because you can take that gnarly root that's down there that we would think is a defect and then you can feature that. That'll be mm-hmm. that'll be part of the visible part that's up above the soil in the container. I have two questions for you, Don. Mm-hmm. How many bonsai you got? I don't do them. 
Hmm? I don't happen. I don't do them. I've done them, but I don't. I don't. You do don't bonsai. have any now. No, and the other many. is, uh, what happens if you're bonsaiing a tree, a, a fruit tree? Well, you're just do you get, do you yes, get miniature uh, fruit on? No, it? the fruit is full size. This customer whose whose father had them had a fig, and it was beautiful. It was a really expertly done. I think she said it was forty or fifty years old. It had a miniature tree with normal sized fruit on it. Mm. That was very cool. I thought that was great. I've seen. I have a picture that I show sometimes of a bougainvillea bonsai. In theory, you can do it to anything. It's just a matter of how much clipping you have to do on the top of something that's unusually vigorous mm-hmm. and uh, how much work it is to keep them watered in a small container. So mm-hmm. not everything is equally easy. But all those principles that we just mm-hmm. stated apply to... Everything the, in a pot, The basically. Meyer lemon you're growing in a half barrel. It's all yeah. the same principle. No, you don't have to take it out and prune the roots, but you've got to keep applying the nutrients somehow. You've got to keep it watered. That's the biggest issue. The most common failure with bonsai trees here, is putting them indoors, and it's not an indoor plant, and it just puts out this weak growth and it just doesn't do well, or difficulty keeping it watered during our hot summer conditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can put them on a system, by the way. Uh, I mean, people who have a lot of container plants will typically often rig up a, a simple drip system, quarter inch or eighth inch tubing going up into each pot to cycle on each day for just a few minutes. And it can certainly be on something like that. Mm-hmm. So if you're going away and you are, you are concerned about a holiday, easier. just have it on a battery operated timer that waters the container plants while you're gone. If you've got a lot of container plants, that's not a bad idea. Hmm. And those four things, air, water, light, and nutrients, yep. apply to not just plants and pots. That applies everything. to everything. Yeah, every, yeah, every gardening talk I give so starts with that. How it's about just, crops like tomatoes and peppers? And in containers. I mean, that question we were talking at the start of the show about tomatoes that have been selected for that. But you can do any tomato in a container. It's just easier if it's bigger. I mean, mm-hmm. I think consider for a tomato plant that's not some specially bred miniature type a 15-gallon bucket with good potting soil will be fine. You make it, may be able to go two or three days between Or waters. a barrel with three plants in it. Even better, yeah. Uh, yeah. I did all my peppers that the gophers didn't get last year were in containers, and mostly they were in two- and three-gallon containers, which turned out to be small, so they needed water every day. Mm-hmm. But as long as they got water every day, I got loads of peppers from them, mm-hmm. and that's a great way to go. We'll be talking more about containerizing vegetables in future shows because I have a lot of customers who just have to do that. That's their only option. So is there a better time to water if you're watering plants in containers? Here here in the valley, I'll say no. You're in um, rainy Long Island or someplace where fungus is a problem. Michigan. Michigan, uh, Canada, coastal California where it's foggy. It's probably better not to get moisture on the leaves of a plant as you're going into the evening. Here, the humidity as you're going into the evening is at the lowest point of the day, probably about 10 or 15%. Fungus problems are not an issue. I'm much more concerned about drought stress than I am about disease problems. Mm -hmm. So the other thing that comes up is, oh, you shouldn't water during the day because you get water droplets on the leaves. No, that's not true. That's a myth. No, there's no truth to that whatsoever. But if there was, I don't know how we'd water our garden center. Hey, um, did you so, ever do a, a, a an article about garden myths? Yes, you'll find them multiple, um, two of them, at redwoodbarn.com. So yeah. we'll end on that. But if you've got questions, you know that you can always, or great pictures or comments. Or you, you want to say you like us. You can send them to <laughs> davisgardenshow at gmail.com. My New Year's resolution is to try to post more of your pictures. So send them in to davisgardenshow at gmail.com. Anytime you got questions, that's a great way to get a hold of us. What's happening on your show today, Lois? I don't know. 
<laughs> you got, got thirty eight seconds. No, to figure actually, it out. it's it's a planning session. So I'm going to play some music, and I'm going to talk to people about what I have as opportunities of things to read for future shows. And I'm going to ask you to tell me what you think. And okay. I'm going to tell you my new new uh, email address, which is kdrt that's life at gmail.com. Coming up next, you've been listening to Davis Garden Show with Don Shore and Lois Richter at KDRTLP 95.7 here in Davis, California.